0: We've been in this series called Unsatisfied from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, This is week four. Last couple of weeks, uh, we're on video because I was in quarantine. So it is good to be back with you. And today we're going to talk about the myth of more and... We're going to look at some scripture in Ecclesiastes four and five and six. If you're used to kind of following along on the screen, uh, if if you have the True Life app, it's uh, there in the the notes are there in the app. Or uh, hopefully you've got a Bible with you, or feel free to use your phone or uh, whatever mobile device that that you may have. So. Uh, do, do you remember, um, I think this was a few months ago, probably last year, could have been longer than that. It's hard to keep up with time, I think, during COVID. Anybody else feel that way? Uh, just like there's time and there's COVID time. It's, it's, life's just weird, but it could have been 47 years ago, maybe. But uh, the scandal that was kind of in the news about uh, where some people, particularly some famous people, had kind of cheated, bribed, spent money to get their kids into certain colleges or on certain athletic teams. Did you hear about that? Are you familiar with that? Uh, it was kind of weird to me because there's like some of these people, like the money they spent, they could have just paid cash for their kid to go to college, and that would have seemed to be a whole lot simpler. But um, a couple of people who were convicted during this, it was the actress Lori Laughlin, I think she was on Full House, and her husband, and they had to pay these huge fines and actually spent time uh, in prison. And um, when they were being sentenced, the, the judge who was doing the sentencing, U.S. District Judge Nathaniel Gorton, uh, said this to Lori Laughlin and her husband. He said, quote, "'Here you are, an admired, successful, professional actor, "'with a long-lasting marriage, two apparently healthy, resilient children, more money than you could possibly need, a beautiful home in sunny Southern California, a fairy tale life. Yet you stand before me a convicted felon. And for what? For the inexplicable, in, sorry, for the inexplicable desire to grasp even more. Those are pretty strong words. And I don't read them to uh, judge them or to condemn them or anything. Uh, I, I read them because I think this judge has diagnosed the condition of the human heart. I mean, don't we have some of this too? I mean, Napoleon Bonaparte said one time that he was surrounded by priests who repeat incessantly that their kingdom is not of this world, yet they lay their hands on everything that they can get. And even as Christians, there's a temptation uh, for us to think uh, that way, for us to be that way, for us just to want more and more and more and more. And in fact, haven't we been just kind of raised that way? Isn't that what society thinks? You know, the American dream, you can have it all. If you work hard enough, you can get whatever you want. And you should have everything that you want. All your dreams should come true. And, you know, if you do enough and good enough and work hard enough, and uh, you know, you can have fill in the blank. And I want you to understand as, as we begin that uh, this message is not to be critical of money. The Bible is not critical of money in and of itself. You know, money is a medium of exchange. Money is morally neutral. There's nothing wrong with things. There's nothing wrong with having things. There's nothing wrong with wanting certain things. Obviously, we need money to live on. In in fact, the Bible tells us that if a man doesn't provide for his own family, that he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. We're, We're told to work hard. God created us to work. There's nothing virtuous about being poor. There's nothing virtuous about being rich. So I want you to understand as, as we begin this message that I'm not really talking about your bottom line on your ledger sheet. I'm not talking about what you're reporting on your income tax statement this year. That's not the issue. Really what Solomon is getting at here and what we're gonna get at as we look at, at, at the scripture is what's going on in our hearts what's going on in our hearts in regard to money and to material things. And really, I think what Solomon is telling us in this scripture, that this is the big idea that I want us to see today, is he's saying to us, God speaking through him, is let's not waste our lives pursuing the myth that more money is going to bring more satisfaction. That's the myth that I believe that God's word is going to expose to us today. This idea that more money is going to bring more satisfaction. Now you say, well, I know better than that. Do we really? Have you ever said something like, if I just had and fill in the blank, then I would be happy? Have you ever said that or thought that you're kind of buying into the myth of more. I think, if I ever had that boat, if I ever have this car, if we ever get this house, if we ever have this much in our bank account, then we'll be happy, then we'll be satisfied. But you know what the reality is? It's like anything else. There's a the law of diminishing returns. If you say, "I need this and need to get that," then what happens? You need something else, and you need a little bit more, and you need a little bit more when we begin to covet what other people have or, or compare ourselves uh, to other people, like if I just had as much as they had, then we're buying into the myth of more. Did, did you know that there's studies that have shown, I read this article, and uh, that you know, the, the average house size in, in America has gone up greatly over, since the 1970s. And you know, on average, people are having less kids. So in the 1970s, there was about 400 and some odd uh, square feet of living space on average per person in a home. Now it's about 900 uh, square feet uh, on average. And what what the study showed is when people, they get a bigger house, they get happier, they get more satisfied until someone in their neighborhood has an even bigger house than they do and then they're no longer as satisfied with their house as they were it's something that's on the inside of us and so you know if we think if i had this or you know if i had this much money then i would be satisfied i think we're buying into the myth of more now now think about solomon as we've approached Ecclesiastes, uh, remember just to kind of reframe it again, some of you may be new. Uh, you know, Solomon was, an, was the wisest man in the world, he was the wealthiest man in the world, he was the, the king of Israel. I mean, he had it all. And in chapter 2, verse 17, he said that he hated life. I believe Psalm, the Ecclesiastes is Solomon's testimony of the part of his life where he walked away from God and, and, and where it got him. And, and I've said you've got to uh, understand the book in light of the first two verses and the last two verses. He started out saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is empty, it's meaningless, it's nothingness. But at the end, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the conclusion of the whole thing. And, under, and, and in the book, he's talking about this comparison between under the sun and over the sun an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective. And he's saying, you know, when I lived with an earthly perspective, when I wasn't walking with God, when I was just doing my own thing, I had it all. had all the women I wanted, all the sex I wanted, all the possessions I wanted, all the pleasure I wanted. I was successful, I was wise. He was like, if he would have lived then, he would have topped the Forbes list of the wealthiest people in the world. He would have been a multi-billionaire. He said, I had it all, and we're going to see today, he says, it left him empty. Really, it left him confused. You know, one of the things that's interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and you know, I said the first message, if, if you don't take Ecclesiastes in context, you can start a cult out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and, and you have to understand this under-the-sun perspective because, you know, everything in Scripture is God-breathed. I don't believe the Bible correctly understood ever contradicts itself because God is the ultimate author behind it all. But there are places, and we're going to see one today in Ecclesiastes, where Solomon contradicts himself. But that's because he's writing out of this under-the-sun perspective. Let me just give you a verse, and I'll show you the contrast later in the message. Chapter 10, verse 19, uh, Solomon said this. Some of you will like this verse. He says, A feast is made for laughter. And wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Now, from an earthly perspective, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Money's the answer for everything. And obviously, there's some truth in that. I mean, there are certain things that we have answers for when we have money that we don't have answers for when we don't have money, right? Your car breaks down this week. And you've got a thousand dollar repair bill, and you've got ten thousand dollars in savings. That's an inconvenience, an annoyance. Your car breaks down this week, and you got a thousand dollar repair bill, and you have forty three dollars in checking and seven dollars in savings. Then you got a problem, right? Money, and there's a lot of things that money answers. There's things that money is the solution for. You have money, you can get things done. The people without money can't get things done. I mean, life works this way. So there's an element of truth in this verse, but we're gonna see, because once again, money's morally neutral. He's not commending being rich. He's certainly not commending being poor. He's talking about the heart, and we're gonna see when it comes to the heart level that money is not the answer to everything. And so, here's what he says, because once again, uh, I, I think the point of the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is what I'm trying to get at, and like we have in the other messages, we'll end up connecting it to Jesus. I think what we learn from Ecclesiastes is the things that we tend to base our lives on, the things that the world tells us that life is about, end up leaving us empty and unsatisfied, and they're not sufficient to actually base our lives on for now and particularly for eternity. And he puts money in that category. He says that more, and more, and more, and more bringing satisfaction, he says it's a myth. And, and I wanna show you five reasons why this idea that if we get more, it's gonna bring more satisfaction is a myth from the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you got your Bible, mobile device, like I can say, notes, whatever, Let, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter four. So you can actually read God's word for itself. And this is the first thing I want to point out to you is that Solomon here tells us that relationships are more important than money. Relationships are more important than money. Look at what he says in chapter four, starting in verse seven. He says, then I returned and I saw vanity, emptiness under the sun. There's one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, Yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. So he's implying here that sometimes it would be wise to stop and ask ourselves this question. What are we really working for? Why are we really working so hard? And and, and he he says, he's speaking of someone here who is just a workaholic, no end to all of his labors, has riches but is never satisfied, but he says, this person is alone, and he says, what's the point? Why am I gaining all of this if I have nobody to share it with and it doesn't fill me up on the inside anyway? And he he goes on, he says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. He's speaking of the importance of relationships. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand something if you're single. The Bible does not commend singleness as better than marriage or marriage as better than singleness. It depends on how God has wired you, how God has gifted you. Some people are called to be single and invest their lives in the building of God's kingdom. So don't limit it to this. But what the Bible does very clearly teach us is that we are wired for, we are designed for relationship. The Bible uh, teaches us that we are made in the image of God, who God in his very nature is relational. The fact that God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship to himself and that we are made in his image means that we absolutely need relationship we do stupid things when we're looking for relationships. We do crazy, insane things out of uh, you know, just loneliness and wanting somebody. People will enter into relationships that hurt them because they'd rather be hurt than be alone. We're wired for relationship. And so, as Solomon says, money is never gonna take the place of relationship. Money is never gonna fill you up on the inside. Money is never going to provide for you what you are looking for in other people. We need each other. That's the idea. So, I mean, this can apply in some different ways. I say, there's nothing wrong with being single. Some of you may be called to be single, but if you're single because you are so invested in your career that you have time for nobody else, he's saying here at some point, that's a dead end. Or how many times have I as a pastor, and you've talked to people like this, who are uh, just miserable, who are distraught because they're losing their family, because they've invested their lives in making money, And maybe they've been successful at it, but they've lost the people they love along the way. Or how many kids in the United States are hurting today because their parents work hard and they give them everything except themselves? I mean, my wife Robin, her story is, I mean, her dad was a successful businessman and, you know, gave them stuff, blessed them materially. But he also went to prison when Robin uh, was in middle school because of insurance fraud. And then, you know, when she was in high school, you know, Robin Singh, she acted, she was in programs at Morristown West uh, where she went. And, you know, some of you know uh, Randy Adams, kind of the legendary choir teacher uh, there and, you know, who was a big influence in her life. And, uh, you know, just having a conversation, I guess, about an upcoming program one day, and Robin made an offhanded report, remark about something about, you know, my dad won't be there. And he's like, uh, Mr. Evans, like, what are you talking about? you when you mean your dad won't be there. And he's like, she's like, he never comes to my programs. And that was kind of their, you know, worked, gave him stuff, but Robin and her siblings said to him, we don't want your stuff, we want you. And that's what Solomon's getting at here. We need each other. We don't need more of this outward stuff. Our hearts need to be filled up by Jesus Christ. Our hearts need to be filled up by other people. You can't buy happiness. You can have it all, but if you die old and alone with nobody, what's it really gonna mean? If you lose the people you love, if you hurt the people you love along the way, what's it really gonna mean? So, having more, is bringing satisfaction is a myth, first of all, because we need relationships more than we need money. But second, it's a myth because the love of money prompts injustice. Now, notice I didn't say money. I said the love of money. Once again, the Bible never condemns having money. Um, God blesses some people to be wealthy. If God has gifted you to make a lot of money, praise the Lord, enjoy what He's blessed you with, and be really generous. That's what God's word would say to you. That could be a gift from Him. Just don't let it ruin your life. So the Bible says not the money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But one of the things that the love of money prompts is injustice. Now, you know we we hear a lot about injustice in our society today and that's really a great thing i think now sometimes it's incorrectly defined maybe misapplied but you know God is a just God. Real justice comes from God. I mean, you know, we did a six-week series about that last year, True Justice in, in, in an Unjust World. And, you know, the Bible has so much to say about that. As Christians, we ought to be a part of pursuing justice. In fact, I, I think when you really understand what Scripture says about this, love and justice go hand in hand. If there's injustice, there's a lack of love. If there's true justice, there's actually love uh, being expressed in that. But here's the reality. One of the things that drives the humongous amounts of injustice that there is in the world is the love of money. I mean, what drove slavery? Greed was a lot of it. What drives things that happen in the world today? What drives political corruption? Bribery. So many things. It's greed. I mean, when you look at uh, charity in the world, I think Bono was right in what he said at the National Prayer Breakfast a few years ago. Charity is really a justice issue, and there's so much money uh, either that governments are giving uh, to poorer countries or that people are giving and, and, and those kind of things, but so much of it never actually gets to the actual needed recipients of it because of corruption and injustice. And, you know, even in our friends in Honduras, that's one of the things I've heard this year. You know, there's countries around the world are giving us money to help during COVID, but it's not getting the people. It's going in the pockets of the government officials. Here's what Solomon had to say uh, about this uh, almost 3,000 years ago. He says in uh, chapter 5, verse 8, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. Don't be surprised by it. For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. You ever been frustrated with government corruption? felt like politicians are crooked or lining their pockets uh, off of us or you read stories uh, about bribery or uh, I won't go into all the details. The New York Times read an, I ran an article about a guy named David Hines who's a business owner who uh, took advantage of the Federal Paycheck Protection Program. Remember that? You know, it came out during COVID and uh, he, he received over $13 million for his employees But he pocketed it all himself, including buying a $318,000 Lamborghini out of that money. The love of money prompts injustice. Greed drives that. So, um, you know, when I, I talk about as a pastor... Obviously, we want, uh, you know, good laws, and obviously we want wise leaders in office and these kind of things, but when I've said things for years like, you know, politics and laws and those kind of things is not the ultimate solution, this is why it's a hard issue. I don't care what kind of laws you have, as long as there's greedy people, they're going to mistreat other people, and there's going to be injustice, and this applies to every area of life. We need a heart change is what Solomon's saying to us. We need something real to, to fill us up on the inside and what's real is not money. So the, the, the pursuit of more and more brings satisfaction, it's, it's a myth. It hurts us, it hurts those closest to us, and it ends up hurting other people even from a farther reach. Number three, we see in chapter five, verse 10 then, that money cannot fill us up on the inside. Money cannot fill us up on the inside. Notice what he says here. Maybe this is the the, the key idea of the whole passage. He says, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity, emptiness, emptiness. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. He says at the beginning of chapter six, there's an evil which I've seen under the sun and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and it's an evil affliction. He's saying you can have wealth and not even be able to enjoy it. But even if you're able to enjoy it outwardly, It's still not gonna fill you up on the inside, it's still vain and empty. You know, that's the myth of the American dream, that if we have it all, that we're gonna be happy. You know, there's research that shows that wealthier people are more prone to depression and less happy than the general population. There's a study that shows that the depression rates among CEOs of major corporations, which a CEO of a major corporation is gonna make multi-million dollars a year, that, that that the depression rate on average is twice as high as the general population. There's research that shows that children of wealthy people are uh, more prone to depression and being unhappy and dissatisfied with life uh, than uh, people on average in the general population. Why? It's the myth of more in action. Just having more does not fulfill us on the inside. In fact, I would say that the way to set your kids up for failure, one of the ways is to give them more and more and more and more to give them everything they want, and then they think they deserve it, and then they think they got to have more and more and more, and that's a recipe for them being dissatisfied and unhappy. How many of you ever played Minecraft? Who's played Minecraft before? Okay, so in two, well, Minecraft was uh, created by a company out of Sweden called Mojang, and, and, and the inventor was a man by the name Marcus Persson, and in 2014 he sold uh, Minecraft to Microsoft for two and a half billion dollars, and so he overnight became a billionaire. His net worth after this sale was about $1.3 billion, with a B, uh, dollars. Now, what's the first thing he did after that? Well, according to an article in Forbes magazine, he outbid Beyonce and Jay-Z for a Beverly Hills mega mansion, paid $70 million for it. Um, uh, this home is described a, in the article as an overwhelming sensory experience. Um, it has amenities like M&M Towers. I don't know even way, exactly what that is, but it sounds awesome. Uh, I mean, who would not want an M&M Tower in your house, right? Um, uh, vodka and tequila bars, a movie theater in the house, 15 bathrooms. But then on August the 29th, 2015, Persone posted this series of tweets. Now listen to this. He has all this, and and, and here's what what he tweeted. Uh, 4.48 a.m. on that uh, day, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying, and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. A couple minutes later, he says, hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, And I've never felt more isolated. A couple of minutes later, when we sold the company, the biggest effort went into making sure the employees got taken care of. And they all hate me now. A minute later, found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a normal person. It's the myth of more. Money won't satisfy. Money won't fill us on the inside. Number four, we see in this text that money... Can bring troubles. Now, I'm not saying it can't do a lot of good too, but it can bring troubles. So, uh, the, the idea here, I think what Solomon's getting at is don't think if you get wealthy someday, that's gonna solve all your problems. It, it may solve some financial problems, but, but listen, if you've got whatever your problems are now, And whatever you've got in the bank now, if we suddenly added a million dollars to that, do you realize you're still going to have the same problems on the inside? And you're going to have some new problems because you're going to have people hitting you up for money. Uh, And you're going to now have to deal with all this new stuff out of the same person that you were before your bank account changed. Uh, look, at what, look at what he says. He says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. What's all I'm saying? I'm wealthy, but I had a lot of sleepless nights because of it. He says, There's a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches, Kept for their owner to his hurt. Now, you might be thinking, no, you know, uh, this, this is just the Bible and it's not real practical and this is a book from a long time ago. You know, how could this be right? Because aren't we wired to think, if I have more, things got to get better? I mean, it, it, it seems logical, doesn't it? I mean, it just does. Life would be so much easier if you never had to think about money. But did you know that according to the National Endowment for Financial Education, that when people win the lottery or seem other, or get some other kind of large financial windfall, that about 70% of them end up bankrupt? Because the reality is, if you're dumb with money, You can be dumb with a lot of money, or a little bit of money, and money can go flying out the door in a hurry, right? You see, here's one of the things I believe. Money can't buy success, money just buys you time. But if you're stupid, you still run out of time eventually. I mean, do a Google search. You can find hundreds if not thousands of examples of people who won the lottery and it ruined their life. Here's one example. Jack Whitaker um, won the largest jackpot ever awarded on a, to a single Powerball ticket on Christmas morning, 2002, in West Virginia. And some states keep lottery winners anonymous. Some announce them. West Virginia apparently announces them. But he, he had uh, a $314.9 million lottery ticket. He decided to take it as a lump sum payment instead of a, an annuity. So he got $113 million, one lump sum, out of this. Now, he's different than um, a, a lot of lottery winners and that he was already uh, a business owner and already financially well-to-do. You know, most wealthy people aren't going to play the lottery because they're, They're wealthy, and they got wealthy by being smart with money, and playing the lottery is just one of the dumbest things you could ever do financially. Um, You're sending my kids to college is what you're doing for me by playing the lottery pretty much uh, in in Tennessee. But he was already wealthy, and and he did some good with the money, created a charitable foundation, did some things like that. But here are some of the other things that happened. And like I say, he's just one example of thousands of the lottery curse. So he developed this bad habit of leaving large amounts of money in his car. One time he had half a million dollars stolen out of his car another time he had a hundred thousand dollars stolen out of his car he kept his company kept getting all these frivolous lawsuits because people knew he had all this money so people kept suing him time after time just to get some of his money so under this strain he begins to unravel started drinking hard getting into fights Uh, he started sexually harassing women offering women uh, money uh, to to sleep with him strip for him those kind of things That's not even the worst of it. He enjoyed spoiling his granddaughter. Her name was Brandy. Gave her a huge allowance four cars, but kind of backfired when she started attracting a bad crowd. And a boyfriend of hers then died of an overdose at her house. About a year after that, she died under suspicious circumstances and they were never able to solve the case. About seven years later, his daughter died. He ended up divorced and he said this, since I won the lottery, I think there is no control for greed. I think if you have something, there's always someone else that wants it. I wish I would have torn that ticket up. Money can bring troubles. Don't assume it's going to solve our problems. And then the last reason we see here is, ultimately, we can't take our money with us when we die. And you see, if we're talking about inward things, the question that we're really asking ourselves is, what am I really going to live for? What's really lasting? What's really important? Notice what Solomon says here, starting in verse 14 of chapter 5. He says, Those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked he shall return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And and this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so he shall go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? What a description, right? I've worked so hard. I've gotten so much for the wind. All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 7, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Colonel Sanders, you know KFC? He put it this way. He said, there's no reason to be the richest man in the cemetery. (laughs) There's no reason to be the richest man in the cemetery. What are we living for? We're living for something that's gonna outlive us. Ed Young Jr. put it this way. This is one of my favorite quotes. He says, you wanna know your net worth? Now, you know, your net worth in an accounting sense is you uh, add up all of your, what you owe and you add up all of your assets. And if there's more assets than what you owe, that's your net worth, right? But he takes it to a deeper level. He says, want to know your net worth? Simply add up everything money can't buy and death can't take away. Everything money can't buy and death can't take away. That's what we're really worth. So I think when we see these things, and, and, and see, here's, here's the thing about the book of Ecclesiastes, and here's the thing about Solomon I think that makes it so powerful. Number one, he's writing out of his experience. And number two, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe the Bible or not, these are just such obvious life things, most of them, that you know it's true. In your heart of hearts, you know that what he's saying is right, that this stuff ultimately can't fulfill us. So why do we keep following this myth? Why do we keep pursuing more and more? And what's the antidote to it? Well, I want to conclude, like every message in this series, by going from the Old Testament to the New Testament and connecting it to Jesus. And, and I want to look at just a couple, quick, a couple passages here quickly. So if you've got a Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 12. And, and I want us to see what Jesus has to say uh, about this. And so in, in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13, I'll set it up while you're turning there. Jesus was teaching, there was a crowd of people, and um, someone said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So, uh, apparently, as there so often is, you know, history keeps repeating itself. We don't really change on the inside. Somebody dies, there's a family dispute over the inheritance, and and they're saying, Jesus, help us solve this. But Jesus responds in the next verse and says, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he's already saying, It's not my business to get in the middle of this. But he used it as a teaching opportunity. And here's the principle. He said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, covetousness is wanting something that belongs to somebody else. It's, uh, you know, comparison is like, I don't have this, you have it. I wish I had what you have. But here's the principle, and I think it's really what Solomon is saying as well. Our life does not consist in the abundance of what we possess. Right? We need possessions, but that's not how we define life. And so he told a parable, a story, to illustrate his point. He said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. This man was thinking to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? He was arrogant, he was overconfident. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. More and more and more. You know, Say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So, I got everything I need. I'm good. Let's build some more and let's go party and let's just enjoy it all. But God said to him, fool. These are Jesus' words. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Reminds me of Jesus' words. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And he concluded by saying, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. But then he transitioned from talking to the crowd and addressing this directly to using it as a teaching point to speak to his disciples and to speak to us today since it's in the Bible. And here's what he tells us to do in in, in regard uh, to finances. He's saying, don't live with the myth of more. Don't live with the mindset that your life consists in the abundance of the things you possess. But he says, live this way. Verse 22, he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying God takes care of his creation. You're not just his creation. If you're saved, you're a child of God. Your father's going to take care of you. He, he, he's saying uh, the, the antidote to worry and anxiety, which we all struggle with. And, and so I'm not you know, acting like I'm perfect and I never struggle with that, but I'm saying when I am anxious and worried, that's sin because i 'm failing to trust god i'm not I'm forgetting who my father is and that he's got it under control and he cares about me and he's taking care of this world and he's going to take care of me as his child He says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour uh, to his span of life if then you're not able to do as small a thing as that why are you anxious about the rest? consider the lilies how they grow they neither toil nor spin yet I tell you even Solomon in all of his glory was not Arrayed like one of these, but if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, but your Father knows that you need them. In other words, He's saying, Are we going to act like a non believer? Living our life worried and anxious about what we have and what we don't have, or are we going to trust our Father? And if we say that we're trusting Jesus to save our eternal soul to take us to heaven, can't we trust Him to take care of us this week? He goes on, he says, in the next verse, I mean, you know, there he said, trust God, but here he says, put God first. He says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, he's saying, put God first, live for the kingdom of God, live to build God's kingdom, and God's gonna take care of these other things. Doesn't mean we're gonna have everything we want but you see, we put our standard as to you know, the world around us and, and we forget that most of the poorest person in this room is richer than most of the world. I'm not saying there's not real poverty in America, but I don't know if there's as much as we act like sometimes. Because we have it so much better the, not just most of the people in the world today, but most of the people who have ever lived in the history of humanity I mean if you think it's bad today and I'm not saying we don't have problems and we don't have issues, uh find somebody in their eighties and nineties and talk to them and 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 just what things were like comparatively speaking when they were growing up I mean. Kids today think they don't have the latest video gaming console, the newest version of an iPhone, and the Jordans they want, that their life is miserable. That's not poverty, can, I, can I, we just be clear about that? I mean, if you've got an iPhone 11, and you know, not the top of the line Jordans, just the average model, and I'm not enough of a video gamer to know what the, video, the latest video gaming console is, you're not you know, dying out of poverty. And then he says, though, in verse 33, sell your possessions and uh, give alms. In other words, help those that really are in need. Provide yourselves money bags, which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, are we living for now? He says, be generous and live for heavenly treasure instead of earthly treasure. One of the richest families in the United States is the Hunt family, oil magnets. June Hunt, who's a dedicated Christian, said that Jesus is worth more than a billion dollars. I read an article, it came from 2012, about David Green, who's the founder, the owner of Hobby Lobby. Billionaire, one of the richest men in, in, in America. He said this, he says, God owns it. How do I separate it? Well, it's God in church and it's mine here. I have purpose in church, but I don't have purpose over here. You can't have a belief system on Sunday and not live in it uh, the other six days. That article estimated, this was in 2012, that he had given over $500 million to Christian ministry. Hobby Lobby's closed on Sundays. I mean, think about it. How much money is that costing them? Or is it really costing them? Same thing with Chick-fil-A. You know, it's crazy how much more the average Chick-fil-A franchise makes than the average fast food uh, franchise in a given year uh, operating, uh, you know, one-seventh less of the time. Maybe it's because the Bible's true and God's ways work. One last thing. Look one other place in Scripture. Matthew chapter 19. And we'll we'll hit this quickly. It's a well-known passage of Scripture. A lot of times it's called the story of the rich young ruler. And um, it says at the end of it in verse 22. That this man had great possessions. But it it says in verse 16. Now behold. uh, One came and said to him. Talking to Jesus. Good teacher. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And you see, Jesus is trying to correct his misunderstanding. He asked the wrong question. You see, and th- but this is how we think. We think, what good thing that I could do, that God's going to accept me, I'm going to have eternal life. Jesus is trying to show him that's not how we get there. So he, he says, uh, you know, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So the guy said to him, which ones? Now, if you're a parent, and you ask your kid, have you done what I told you to do? And the kid responds, well, which thing are you talking about? You're going to immediately be suspicious, right? I hope so. If not might be a little naive about your kid. I mean, this is some immediate justification is gonna start happening here. It's like, okay, I wanna pick out the ones I've done, but let's leave out the ones I didn't do. So Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not not commit adultery, you shall not steal, not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is the summation of that that half of the 10 Commandments. You notice Jesus left out the half about God. But he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. As Jesus is saying the way to heaven is by selling everything we have, that would contradict the entire New Testament, the entire gospel, the entire Bible, that it's not based on what we do, it's based on what Jesus has done. What Jesus was doing is he was exposing that the man didn't really love his neighbors himself, he loved his possessions. He wasn't willing to help the poor and, and, and the next verse says, when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, what Jesus was trying to get this young man to recognize is that he was God. He said, no one's good but God. And Jesus, or this man had called him a good teacher, so he should have said, oh, you're God. He, he's trying to get him to recognize that I'm not good enough, that I need your grace. But he was trying to get him to surrender to him, to give up the idol of his possessions and to surrender to Jesus as the Lord of your life. And here's what I'm saying to conclude this whole thing. What Solomon is saying to us in Ecclesiastes is anything we put in the place of God is an idol. It might be a good thing, but if it becomes a God thing, it's a bad thing. It might be wisdom. It might be pleasure. Pleasure. It might be money, it might be possessions, it might be position, it might be what we have. It could be relationships, it could be sex. He hits on all these things. Next week we're gonna see he even hits on religion uh, as an idol, but he's saying, if this is what our life is based on, it leaves us empty, it leaves us separated from God. And Jesus would say to us, whatever it is, it could be money, it could be something else, But if it's keeping you from me, lay it down, repent. I'm God. I have grace for you. I died for your sins. Now come. Follow me. That's where there's life. That's where there's eternal life. That's where there's meaning and satisfaction. That's what keeps life from being empty. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have come that you might have life and have it more uh, abundantly. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Don't lose your soul. Come to me. We bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to ask you whether... You're here in the room, you're watching online. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you finding your fulfillment, your satisfaction in Him? Are you believing the myth of more? Or maybe it's something else. Listen. Maybe you've prayed a prayer at some point. Maybe you've joined a church. But deep down inside, you know that you're not really truly living for the Lord Jesus. He's not the Lord of your life. You're not following Him. Your life's based on other things. Listen, what I would encourage you to do right now if you're empty on the inside, let Jesus fill you. If you believe that He's God, Who came from heaven to earth? That he lived a perfect and a sinless life, but that he died on the cross, the death you deserve to die for your sins in your place, and he rose from the dead. Will you turn from your sin? Will you turn from your pride? Will you turn from your self righteousness? Will you turn from whatever it is that's controlling your life and come to Jesus? Ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask him to take control. Just call on his name. Confess your sins. Ask his forgiveness. Tell him you believe in him. Tell him you want to follow him. And listen, if you call on his name in faith, he's going to forgive you. He's going to come into your life. He's going to change you. There's no magic formula. There's no magic words. But I just encourage you in this moment to do that, to call on his name. If you do that, let us know. If you're online, text us or Uh, Let the host know in the the comments section or the chat section. We'd love to just kind of help you take your next steps. If you're here, come see me, or you can also text us. Or if you just got questions, if you just want to be sure, if you need to know some more. Like I mentioned at the beginning, if you need to be baptized, and, uh, you know, if you're... a Christian, never been baptized. If you're a new Christian. If you receive Christ today, publicly confess your faith in him. We're going to do that next week, and uh, we'd love to help you take that step. Maybe you're a Christian, but your life is revolving around money and material things. Today, you need to repent of that. Put Jesus in his proper place as the Lord of your life to trust him, to rely on him, to find your fulfillment in him and not stuff. You know, this message has been about a hard attitude toward money, but maybe you're just struggling financially. Maybe it's more practical and maybe you're not greedy. You're just having a tough time financially. Maybe you've been out of work, that kind of thing. I want you to know we have a financial coaching ministry that can help you with that, help you with the get out of debt plan, help you with the budget, help you with just some practical stuff. If you're interested in that, let us know. But like I said, if you've got questions, you need prayer, New and just like to come introduce yourself. I'd love to see you when you're finished. When we're finished, and uh, let me close this in prayer. But I just encourage you to call on the name of Jesus. If He's working in your heart, and He's giving you the faith to believe in Him. The Bible says, "With the heart, man believes unto righteousness; with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation." Lord Jesus, I pray that you would draw people to yourself, give people the grace to repent and to believe. Father, I pray that as Christians that our life will be centered and grounded in you, that we live for eternity and not the here and now, that you give us the grace to, to be generous, to invest in your kingdom, and to live like Jesus is Lord every day and over every area of our lives, including our finances, that we would put you first and trust you with the rest. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Hope you have a great day, great week.